Chapter Ten of A Son at the Front. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chad. A Son at the Front by Edith Wharton. Chapter Ten. The war was three months old, three centuries. By virtue of some gift of adaptation which seemed forever to discredit human sensibility, people were already beginning to live into the monstrous idea of it, acquire its ways, speak its language, regard it as a thinkable, endurable, arrangeable fact, to eat it by day and sleep on it, yes, and soundly at night. The war went on, life went on, Paris went on. She had had her great hour of resistance. When alone, exposed and defenceless, she had held back the enemy and broken his strength. She had had afterward her hour of triumph, the hour of Marne, then her hour of passionate and prayerful hope, when it seemed to the watching nations that the enemy was not only held back but thrust back, and victory finally in reach. That hour had passed in its turn giving way to the grey reality of the trenches. A new speech was growing up in this new world. There were trenches now. There was a front. People were beginning to talk of their sons at the front. The first time John Campton heard the phrase, it sent a shudder through him. Winter was coming on, and he was hunted by the vision of the youths. Out there, boys of George's age, thousands and thousands of them, exposed by day in reeking wet ditches and sleeping at night under the rain and snow people were talking calmly of victory in the spring the spring that was still six long months away and meanwhile what cold and wet what blood and agony what shattered bodies out on that hideous front what shattered homes in all the lands that guard it campton could bear to think of these things now his son was not at the front was safe, thank God, unlikely to remain so. During the first awful weeks of silence and uncertainty, when every morning brought news of a fresh disaster, when no letters came from the army and no private messages could reach it, during those weeks, while Campton, like other fathers, was without news of his son, the war had been to him simply a huge featureless mass crushing him earthward, blinding him, letting him neither think nor move nor breathe. But at last he had got permission to go to Challens, whether Fortin, who chanced to have begun his career as a surgeon, had hastily transferred. The physician, called from his incessant labours in a roughly impoverished operating room, to which Campton was led between rows of stretchers laden with livid blood-splashed men, had said kindly, but with a shade of impatience, that he had not forgotten, had done what he could, that George's health did not warrant his being discharged from the army, but that he was temporarily on a staff job at the rear, and would probably be kept there if such and such influences were brought to bear. Then, calling for hot water and fresh towels, the surgeon vanished and Campton made his way back with lowered eyes between the stretchers. The influences in question were brought to bear, not without Anderson Brandt's assistance, and now that George was fairly certain to be kept at clerical work a good many miles from the danger zone, 
Campton felt less like an ant under a landslide, and was able for the first time to think of the war as he might have thought of any other war, objectively, intellectually, almost as passionately as of history in the making. It was not that he had any doubt as to the rights and wrongs of the case. The painfully preserved equilibrium of the neutrals made a pitiful show now that the monstrous facts of the first weeks were known. Germany's diplomatic perfidy, her savagery in the field, her premeditated and systematized terrorizing of the civil populations. Nothing could efface what had been done in Belgium and Luxembourg, the burning of Louvain, the bombardment of Reims. These successive outrages had aroused in Campton the same incredulous wrath as the rest of mankind, but being of a speculative mind, I'm fairly sure now that George would never lie in the mud and snow with the others. He had begun to consider the landslide in its universal relations, as well as in its effects on his private ant heap. His son's situation, however, was still his central thought, that this lad, who was meant to have been born three thousand miles away in his own safe, warless country, and who was regarded by the government of that country as having been born there, as subject to her laws and entitled to her protection, that this lad, by the most idiotic of blunders, a blunder perpetuated before he was born, should have been dragged into a conflict in which he was totally unconcerned, should become temporarily and arbitrarily the subject of a foreign state, exposed to whatever catastrophes that state might draw upon itself. This fact still seemed to Campton as unjust as when it first dawned on him that his boy's very life might hang on some torturous secret negotiation between the cabinets of Europe. He still refused to admit that France had any claim on George, any right to his time, to his suffering or to his life. He had argued it out a hundred times with Adele Anthony. You say Julia and I were to blame for not going home before the boy was born, and God knows I agree with you. But suppose we'd meant to go, suppose we'd made every arrangement, taken every precaution, as my parents did in my own case, got to Havre and Cherbourg, say, and been told the steamer had broken her screw, or been prevented ourselves at the last moment, by illness or accident, or any sudden grab of the hand of God. You'll admit we shouldn't have been to blame for that, yet the law would have recognised no difference. George would still have found himself a French soldier on the 2nd of last August because, by the same kind of unlucky accident, he and I were born on the wrong side of the Atlantic. And I say that's enough to prove. It's an iniquitous law, a travesty of justice. Nobody's going to convince me that. Because a steamer may happen to break a phalanges of her screw with the wrong time, or a poor woman be frightened by a thunderstorm, France has the right to force an American boy to go and rot in the trenches. In the trenches? Is George in the trenches? Adele Anthony asked, raising her pale eyebrows. No, Campton thundered, his fist crashing down among her tea things, and all your word juggling isn't going to convince me that he ought to be there. He paused and stared furiously about the little lady-like drawing-room, into which Miss Anthony's sharp angles were so incongruously squeezed. She made no answer, and he went on. George looks at the thing exactly as I do. Has he told you so? Miss Anthony inquired, 
rescuing his teacup and putting sugar into her own. He has told me nothing to the contrary. You don't seem to be aware that military correspondence is censured, and that a soldier can always blurt out everything he thinks. Miss Anthony followed his glance about the room, and her eyes paused with his on her own portrait. Now, in the place of honour over the mantelpiece, where it hung incongruously above a menagerie of china, animals and a collection of trophies from the Marne. I dropped in at the Luxembourg yesterday, she said. Do you know whom I saw there? Anderson Brandt. He was looking at George's portrait and turned as red as a beet. You ought to do him a sketch of George some day. After this, Campton's face darkened. He knew it was partly through Brandt's influence that George had been detached from his regiment and given a staff job in the Argonne. But Miss Anthony's reminder annoyed him. The Brants had acted through sheer selfish cowardice, the desire to safeguard something which belonged to them, something that they valued as they valued their pictures and tapestries, though of course in a greater degree, whereas he, Campton, was sustained by a principle which he could openly avow, and was ready to discuss with anyone who had the leisure to listen. He had explained all this so often to Miss Anthony that the words rose again to his lips without an effort. If it had been a national issue, I should have wanted him to be among the first, such as our having to fight Mexico, for instance. Yes, or the moon. For my part, I understand Julia and Anderson better. They don't care a fig for national issues. They're just animals defending their cub. There? Thank you, Campton exclaimed. Well, poor Anderson really was a dry nurse to the boy. Who else was there to look after him? You were painting Spanish beauties at the time, she frowned. Life's a puzzle. I see perfectly that if you'd let everything else go to keep George, you'd never have become the great John Campton, the real John Campton you were meant to be, and it wouldn't have been half as satisfactory for you or for George either. Only, in the meanwhile, somebody had to blow the child's nose and pay his dentist and doctor, and you ought to be grateful to Anderson for doing it. Aren't there bees or ants or something that are kept for such purposes? Camden's lips were open to reply when her face changed, and he saw that he had ceased to exist for her. He knew the reason. That look came over everybody's face nowadays at the hour when the evening paper came. The old maidservant brought it in and lingered to hear the communique. At that hour, everywhere over the globe, business and labour and pleasure, if it still existed, were suspended for a moment while the hearts of all men gathered themselves up in a question and a prayer. Miss Anthony sought for her lorgnon and failed to find it. With a shaking hand, she passed the newspaper over to Compton. Violent enemy attacks in the region of Dixmude, Ypres, Armentier, Arras, in the Argonne, and on the advanced slopes of the Grand Conon de Nancy have been successfully repulsed. We have taken back the village Soupir near Vahien. We have taken Mocour and Mogeville and the north-east of Verdun. Progress has been made in the region of Velmel, Padekele, south of aix Nulle. Enemy attacks in the Eau de Meuse and southeast of Saint-Mihel have also been repulsed. In Poland, the Austrian retreat is becoming general. 
the russians are still advancing in the direction of kelce sandomir and have progressed beyond the san in galicia Mwava has been reoccupied and the whole railway system of poland is now controlled by the russian forces a good day oh decidedly a good day at this rate what became of the gloomy forecasts of the people who talked of a winter in the trenches to be followed by a spring campaign true the serbian army was still retreating before superior austrian forces but there too the scales would soon be turned if the russians continued to progress that day there was hope everywhere the old maid-servant went away smiling and miss anthony poured out another cup of tea campton had not lifted his eyes from the paper suddenly they lit on a short paragraph fallen on the field of honour one had got used to that with the rest used even to the bang of reading names one knew evoking familiar features young faces blotted out in blood young limbs convulsed in the fires of that hell called the front but this time campton turned pale and the paper fell to his knee fortan lecluse jean-jacques marie lieutenant of chasseurs et pieds gloriously fallen for france there followed a ringing citation fortin's son his only son was dead campton saw before him the honest bourgeois dining-room so strangely out of keeping with the rest of the establishment he saw the late august sun slanting in on the grip about the table on the ambitious and unscrupulous great men the two quiet women hidden under his illustrious roof and the youth who had held together these three dissimilar people making an invisible home in the heart of all that publicity campton remembered his brief exchange of words with fortin on the threshold and his father's uncontrollable outburst for his mother and myself it's not a trifle having our only son in the war campton shut his eyes and leaned back sick with the memory this man had had a share in saving george but his own son he could not save what's the matter miss anthony asked her hand on his arm campton could not bring the name to his lips nothing nothing only this room's rather hot and i must be off anyhow he got up escaping from her solicitude and made his way out he must go at once to fortin's for news the physician was still at calonne's but there would surely be some one at the house and campton could at least leave a message and ask where to write dusk had fallen his eyes usually feasted on the beauty of the new paris the secret mysterious paris of veiled lights and deserted streets but to-night he was blind to it he could see nothing but fortin's face hear nothing but his voice when he said our only son in the war he groped along the pitch-black street for the remembered outline of the house since no house numbers were visible and rang several times without result he was just turning away when a big mud-splashed motor drove up he noticed a soldier at the steering wheel then three people got out stiffly two women smothered in crape and a haggard man in a dirty uniform Campton stopped and fortin lecluse recognized him by the light of the motor lamp the four stood and looked at each other the old mother under her crape appeared no bigger than a child ah you know the doctor said campton nodded 
The father spoke in a firm voice. It happened three days ago at Sweep. You've seen his citation? They brought him in to me at Calon's without a warning and too late. I took off both legs, but gangrene had set in. Ah, uh, if I could have got hold of one of our big surgeons, yes, we're just back from the funeral. My mother and my wife, they had that comfort. The two women stood beside him like shrouded statues. Suddenly, Madame Fortin's deep voice came through the crepe. You saw him, Monsieur, that last day, the day you came about your own son, I think. I? Yes, Canton stammered in anguish. The physician intervened. And now, ma bonne mère, you're not to be kept standing. You're to go straight in and take your tisane and go to bed. He kissed his mother and pushed her into his wife's arms. Goodbye, my dear. Take care of her. The woman vanished under the porte cochere, and Fortin turned to the painter. Thank you for coming. I can't ask you in. I must go back immediately. Back? To my work. Thank God. If it were not for that. He jumped into the motor, called out en route, and was absorbed into the night. End of chapter 10. Recording by Chad.